All right, go ahead and turn to uh, your books there. We're into our third week now on the... Oops, let me go ahead and... Are we on? Here we are. Um, we're in our third week and uh, of a, this apologetic series, and we're looking at how do we know we can trust the Bible. Last week we looked at um, the origin of the Bible, which has to do with how it came about, and we looked at why it is that we can trust the Bible from that standpoint. This morning we're going to look at the accuracy of the Bible. In other words, can we trust what it says? So we're going to look at a couple of uh, different things. We're going to look at knowing the challenge again. We're going to look at uh, knowing the truth about the accuracy of the Bible, and then we'll look at some possible questions. But let's look at knowing the challenge here. The world claims, and this is probably no shock to anybody, the world claims that the Bible is filled with myths. How many of you kids have favorite stories from the Bible? Okay. What's your, uh, Dave, what's your favorite story? He raised his hand even though he's not a kid. What's your favorite story? Uh, about Joseph and his journey from being thrown into a bag by his brothers and his, his whole arc. Yeah, the story, the story of Joseph. Um, shouldn't, shouldn't shock us that um, many scholars don't believe that Joseph really existed. Okay, it's a fake story. Who else? Um, you had a favorite story. What's your favorite story from the Bible? Yeah. Noah's Ark, okay. Does it surprise you that the world doesn't think that uh, Noah's Ark existed? Yeah, I mean, we have a big ark down in Cincinnati, and you know the mockery and the ridicule and the criticism that you know people have gotten or given over that because, come on, that's not a that's not a real story, is it? What's funny about that is almost every culture in the world has a story similar to Noah's Ark. It's not just Christians in the Bible. Okay, um, who else has a favorite Bible story? Yeah, birth of Jesus. Yeah. Now, the birth of Jesus is an interesting one because some people claim, yeah, it really happened, but there are some that deny that Jesus even existed. You know, that's that's another one that um, people really question. What about uh, anybody else? Another another one, Katie. Creation. Right, creation. The world thinks that the whole creation story is nuts. You know, we have evolutionists telling us that it took billions and billions and billions of years, Katie, to um, to create what actually exists here. But it's another one. Anybody else have another story? Kimberly. I liked um, what we studied in Revelation and Jonah. Okay, the story of Jonah. Okay. Now, does it, does it surprise us that the world thinks that there's no way that a human being could get swallowed by a fish and survive? I mean, the world thinks that's nuts, right? Um, we were just recently out on uh, the beach on the East Coast, and we went to Ripley's um, Aquarium out there, and one of the things you notice when you walk in is they have this, it's basically a shark mouth, meaning just the, the jaw from a shark. I could stand inside it if I wanted to, and it's from a real fossil. Now, a shark is a fish. I'm not saying Jonah was swallowed by a shark, but this was from a, I mean, it, was, it could easily swallow a human being. Now, scientifically, they say that you couldn't survive, you know, but... How do we know, right? Anybody else have um, some favorite favorite stories? Yeah, the story of Ruth. Okay, another one that a lot of a lot of scholars, even Jewish scholars, wonder if that really, really that she ever lived. Anybody else? What do you got? What's the story? Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Okay, so we know that there's. My whole point in bringing this up is that there are stories after stories after stories in the Old Testament and the New that we are told are nothing but myths. They just they never really happened. We have Noah's flood. We have Adam and Eve that didn't exist. We have Moses in the burning bush. We have the Exodus where Israel came out of Egypt. Jonah in the great fish. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, how could they survive in a fiery furnace, right? Daniel in the lion's den. What about the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Many of those details. What about the miracles of Jesus? We're told that those are just myths. In fact, I think I shared this last week, this group that, um, it's called the Jesus Seminar, and they refer to themselves as looking for the historical Jesus, the real Jesus, because the Jesus we have in the Bible is just a myth. It's not real. So that's the challenge that we face. People, when they look at this Bible from the outside, want to tell us that it's basically full of a bunch of myths. Now, something else we're told about this, the Bible says that 
outside of the myths and the stories that really don't exist in their mind, that this book is also filled with a ton of contradictions. Who can tell me what a contradiction is? What's a contradiction? Yeah, something that goes back on itself. So this is one thing and this and something else. So what they say is that this Bible says one thing and then it says something else. It's filled with all kinds of contradictions. Your mom's going to get all upset at me if I keep feeding you this morning. Okay? So they say it's full of contradictions. I'm going to ask you kids some questions and you tell me what the answers are to this. How many animals, okay, when it comes to, to groups of animals, did, Anna, or did Noah take on the ark? What is it? How did he do it? He did them in what? He took how many of each kind of animal? Somebody shout it out for me. Seven or eight two. species? Two. Seven or eight. He said something like seven or eight species. Yeah, now, they're, they're, the people say that the Bible story isn't even consistent because in one place it says that Noah took two of every kind. But then it says elsewhere that he took seven of every kind. But which is it? Is it two or is it Seven. The crazy thing is about that, people will say that's a contradiction, you can't trust the Bible, but they fail to read the story, because what it says is he took two of every unclean and seven of every clean. There's a simple answer for that, but they say it's a contradiction. Who's to blame for sin? Was it Adam or was it Eve? <laughs> he gets a whole thing, I know where he's going with this. It was a woman, right? Well, the Bible says both, doesn't it? I mean, when we go to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, what do we see? Who was the first to take a bite? But what does Paul say in the book of Romans? Who does he blame? Adam. So they say, well, that's a contradiction. The Bible says it's Eve that first, and then it says it's Adam. Well, and you can, get into the, uh, you can get into the stories, and you can understand why. The reason, the Bible tells us that Eve was the first to sin. But because Adam was head over God's creation, he's the one that's responsible for it, which is what Paul actually talks about. It's not a contradiction. Okay? You have to read the story. Um, what else? Here's one. I, I, I love this one. Did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a colt or a donkey? Because in the Gospels it tells us in one place that he rode a colt and another he wrote a donkey. I saw an article on this not too long ago where they made a big deal of this. You can't trust the Bible because of that. You know what's interesting about that, folks? The word that's used here in the Greek can refer to a colt or a donkey. It's just an English translation. Okay, now, when you think about it, this makes those people really look rather ridiculous when they start pulling out stuff like this and you can simply go to the text and you can say, really, this, this, this is not a contradiction. They argue things like the genealogy of Jesus. There's two genealogies of Jesus given, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And those don't line up exactly because one comes from the line of Mary and one comes from the line of Joseph. They're not really a contradiction. And there's all kinds of these folks. Um, so we have the world outside that tells us the Bible's filled with contradictions. But when you really get into it and you start looking, they're not generally contradictions. You just have to read the details of the story. The last thing that the world says is that the Bible is filled with mistakes and errors. Now, those are different than contradictions. They're just outright mistakes or areas. And things like science, history, Bible, or I'm sorry, um, biology, geography. What's a big, big error or mistake according to people about creation? Anybody want to help me with that? What are we taught in school? Millions of years. Yeah. Millions and millions and millions or billions of years, right? What, is the, what does Genesis 1 say if we just read it plainly? That the earth is young. Yeah, that the earth is young, right? Okay, so they say, well, the Bible's wrong because the Bible says six days, and we know we, we, evolution is proven... That it's a lot older than that, right? I won't go into all the trying to solve that problem for us this morning, but we have this claim that the Bible's wrong because science thinks something else. What about um, this one? Genesis 1 2 says that light existed before what? Well, darkness, but what else? Water? No. I heard it over here. What wasn't created until after light? The sun. Yeah, the sun. The text tells us that light came first, and then the sun. And so people say, well, that's impossible. That can't happen. The Bible's wrong. I'm looking around this room, and I'm thinking, you know, i got a light source here. It's certainly not the sun. Are there more sources for light than just the sun? 
You know, what's interesting is the Bible tells us that God himself radiates light. We're told that some heavenly beings, angels and angelic beings, radiate light. It's not impossible to think that when God created the universe, that light could exist before the sun. And yet, they'll say, because of that, the Bible's wrong, it's a mistake, there's an error there. Um, How about this one? Um, Genesis refers to the moon as being a great light, minor light, basically. You have the great light, the sun, and then a minor light of the moon. And they'll say, the Bible's wrong, because we know that the moon is not a light. But how many of you have gone outside at night and had everything illuminated because of the moon? Now, clearly, we're not idiots. We know that when the Bible says they have the lesser light or the minor light in the sky, that it simply means that the, that the moon is reflecting light because God created it with a surface that would reflect light in the evenings to cover it so we could see where we're going. Okay? But yet, they'll claim things. So, we find that you can go throughout the scriptures like this and find statements that the world will take and they will twist and they will say things like, it's wrong because the Bible says this. Um, another crazy one that I, that I love is a um, statement that the Bible's wrong because it says, the Bible says that the earth is the center of the universe and everything revolves around it. And they say that the reason for that is because the Bible describes the sun rising and setting. And the, the sun doesn't rise and set, does it? You know, That's just a figure of speech, is it not? When we say the sun rises and sets, we don't mean that the earth sits still and the sun moves, do we? But yet, that's the argument they'll use. Is that a silly, silly thing to say? They don't just don't. So they'll use all kinds of arguments to twist what the scriptures say to claim that it's filled with errors. I'm going to use one last one here for you kids. This is a good one. Somebody uh, raise your hand on this. How many legs does an insect have? This is going to go all the way back. I want somebody that hasn't answered one yet. Okay? Otherwise, somebody's going to go home filled with a belly full of chocolate. Anybody know how many legs an insect has? Well, you know what, though? The Bible says that, let's see, Leviticus chapter 11 says that insects have four legs. So who's right? Hmm. Okay. What's really interesting is, and I won't go into all the details, you go to that particular passage, which is referring to a specific insect, that actually uses four legs for walking and two for jumping. It has six. But it only uses four for walking, and so the text kind of describes that, and it uses two for jumping. Again, it's a ridiculous thing. See, the Bible says that insects only have four legs, but we know they have six, and therefore the Bible's wrong, and you just can discount everything that the Bible says. Unless you use a little bit of reason, and you go to the text, and you see what it actually says. Okay. So, my point in all of this is this. The thing that, the challenge we are up against, okay, whether you're in school, and to be real frank, whether you're in private school, public school, Christian school, whether you're homeschooled, you'll face stuff like this. You know, we're homeschooled in our family, and yet, okay, I remember a booklet, or a book that Amy had at home, a booklet or pamphlet, I don't remember what it was, but it was describing some things about early man that were well outside what's described in the scripture. And it showed man going back 20, 30, 40, 50, 000, and this is a Christian resource. So we see it even in, in Christian homes sometimes where we have to look at what's taught and fed. But the challenge we face is stuff like this, specifically in school and in our society and our culture, where they're going to say the Bible's filled with myths. It's all stories. They didn't exist. The history's wrong. They're going to say things like there's all kinds of mistakes and errors in the Bible. You can't trust it. So you throw it all out. That's the challenge. Okay. Now what about the truth? I'm going to give you four things that demonstrate the reliability of the Bible in terms of its accuracy. Four things, okay? The first one I'm going to give you is fulfilled prophecy. That's a, I think that's an important one for us. Basically, the Bible makes a number of claims about things that are going to take place, and when those things take place, we know we can trust it. So what is a prophecy? Somebody give me a definition of a prophecy. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, it's something generally that it, it's a statement about the future, something that's going to happen. Does anybody know how many um, prophecies are made in the Old and New Testament combined? Anybody just jump on a number? It's 2,500 prophecies 
in the Old and the New Testament. Okay, Approximately 80% of which have come true. That's a pretty remarkable record, right? Now, the other 20% are still waiting. Doesn't mean they haven't happened. I'm going to give you some examples here. Genesis chapter 15. Why don't you turn there with me? Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. Well, this is a very specific one. This is the story of Abraham. This is long before the establishment of Israel as a nation. God is calling Abraham, and he's promised Abraham he would give him a son, but then he tells him something that's going to happen. And it's actually found in verse 15. I'm sorry, verse uh, 13. Chapter 15, verse 13. He says this, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. That's a reference to Egypt. Where they will be enslaved and oppressed... 400 years. Anybody want to venture to guess how long Egypt or how long Israel was in Egypt before Moses took them out of the promised land? Yeah, Aiden knows. 400 years. Generations and generations later, the prophecy was fulfilled. How about Jeremiah chapter 25? Anybody want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 25? Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. Remember, we had studied this. Um, remember when we looked at the book of Judges and we went through this cycle of watching Israel constantly um, sin against the Lord and then they'd be chastised and be judged and God would then raise up a judge and rescue them and then they'd start the whole process over again? At some point, God finally takes them off into captivity where they're conquered by the Babylonians and taken away into captivity. And Jeremiah the prophet actually describes that. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 through 12. He says, This whole land will be desolation and um, horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon. And how many years does he say there? Seventy years. Then it will be when seventy, seventy years are complete, I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. This actually was fifty years. This, um, Jeremiah wrote this prophecy fifty years before this actually took place. And he said, you're going to be conquered by the Babylonians, and 70 years you're going to be in captivity. But then after 70 years, I'm going to rescue Israel and let them go back home. Well, if we just move a little forward in the text, we find that that happened. That 50 years later, the king of Babylon came in, conquered Israel, took them off into captivity, where they lived for 70 years, before God conquered them and brought them out. And we have the stories of, of them going back to the land through books like Ezra where they go back into captivity. I won't have you turn here, but Isaiah prophesied about this exact same event, but he did it 150 years before it happened. And not only that, he even gives us the name of the king in Babylon that will let him, let him go. even says, this is who it is. So these are just a couple of examples of fulfilled prophecy where the Old Testament made these claims, these, these prophets said these things would happen. And they came about exactly as the prophets predicted. There's over 300 prophecies referring to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Any of you guys name any of them? What are some of the things that the Old Testament said about our Messiah? Anybody want to venture to guess? What were some of the prophecies made about Jesus in the Old Testament that came true in the New? I'm really pulling teeth, huh? Adults can do it too. Yeah, the crucifixion of Jesus, the way that Jesus would actually be crucified was something that was prophesied. In fact, the description of crucifixion, which was not used in Israel, given by Isaiah, it was an unknown um, torture practice. So for him to be able to describe the death that the Messiah would face long before that disgraceful form of death was even invented is pretty remarkable. Okay? 
also some things about, um, you know, the, the Romans would typically break the legs of their victims they crucify. They didn't do that in Jesus. Prophesied by Isaiah. By Isaiah. What else? What other prophecies of the Old Testament made about Jesus Christ that came true in the New? You guys got to know some of them. Who was Jesus' mom? Yeah, and what was she? She was a virgin. Yeah, she was a virgin. Yeah. So, the fact that a young woman, a virgin, would give birth to a child, and that's exactly what happened to Jesus. A whole slew of others. He'd be a descendant of Abraham. He'd be from the tribe of Judah. Talked about a messenger. Isaiah talked about a messenger, John the Baptist, that would prepare the way. Isaiah chapter 53 says he'd be buried with the rich. Psalm 16 says that he would rise from the dead. Micah says that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Think about that. Old Testament prophets naming the exact location, a small, insignificant city, Bethlehem, of no real value in the world. And yet he was able to say, that's where the Messiah is going to come from. That's where he's going to be born. So you have these prophecies about Jesus, over 300 of them. So what, what, what's the point here? One of the reasons we know we can trust the Bible in terms of its accuracy is because it makes all these predictions. 2,500 of them, again, 80% of which have come true. Just in Jesus Christ himself, we have over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament made about our Messiah that came true in Jesus, and he couldn't have made that happen. How do you make your birth? How do you decide where you're born? How many of you guys decided where you'd be born? How many of you decided who you'd be born to? Yeah. Really? really? Um, you can't do that. And so Jesus couldn't manipulate that himself and make himself fulfill the prophet, prophecies that were given. So what we basically have, the first reason I believe that we can trust the accuracy of the Bible is because it's proven itself with these prophecies. There are no other writings in history that do that, folks. Now, you've heard about the writings of Nostradamus, maybe, you know. He doesn't really predict a whole lot of anything. They twist and, and make his writings fit things that don't always really fit. But there is nothing else like the Bible when it comes to making prophecies and predictions about the future that have come true in the way that the Bible has. And so that ought to tell us something about the Scriptures. We ought to be able to trust it when it does that. Because that's remarkable. And it wasn't just one or two or three. I get a big kick out of the, you know, when you drive along 23, there used to be a psychic on 23. A little house down there. and You know, no longer there, by the way. And so it makes me wonder, did she foresee her own demise? <laughs> you know? You see these people that um, always claim to be able to tell the future or other things. And you scratch your head because most of the time it's so generic. and fa- They're not real prophets. If they were, they'd be able to tell us exactly what's going to happen in the future, and they rarely, if ever, can. So the first thing that we say would, re- would support the reliability of the Scriptures is that we have fulfilled prophecy. And the second reason that we can trust the Bible is historical accuracy. Historical accuracy. There are those, uh, by far the majority of historians in our world are not um, believers in what the Scriptures say or write. Um, I would call them secular historians. And they make claims that the Bible's history is incorrect or inaccurate. Let me give you some examples. How many of you have ever heard of the Hittites? They're mentioned 50 times in the Old Testament. But you know, for years, scholars, even some Bible scholars, would argue that we know the Bible is wrong historically because it mentions these people called Hittites, and they just don't exist. They've never existed in history. They're a made-up... People. In fact, they're mentioned over 50 times in the Bible. And that was a pretty big thing. You heard that, in fact, when I was in college, that was a kind of a, a big thing still, which is kind of remarkable because guess what happened? In 1906, they discovered the Hittite capital in Turkey. So all of a sudden, this group that never existed, that the Bible made up, that was wrong, oh gee, I guess they really do exist. But like I said, even when I was in college, they were still using that same argument. Bible refers to the Hittites, and they don't really exist, when the reality is, they did. Who was King David? You guys don't know who King David was? Katie, you know who King David was, don't you? He was Jesse's son. He was Jesse's son, right. He was the king of Israel. 
Okay? Did you know that up until fairly recently, scholars didn't think King David even existed? In fact, they believed that in some respects, Israel's history started with Solomon. Because King David, they claimed, never existed. In 1993, however, they found a large inscription that said, House of David, King of Israel, that was found in northern Israel. And then, in fact, in 2005, so just think about it, 12 years ago, folks, a couple of archaeologists, using the Bible as their guide, actually found King David's ancient temple, or ancient palace. Now think about that for a second. We live in 2017. It's only been in the last 15 or 20 years or so that historians even believe that King David existed. The Bible was wrong, is what they said. King David never existed. Israel didn't get their start the way they claimed until archaeology proved that, again, the Bible was true. They found the palace of David. They found a place in northern Israel that describes the king of the Jews as Jesse's son, David. How many of you guys remember the story of Jesus healing the blind man when he... Remember what he did? Somebody, somebody that doesn't have a hand. <laughs> How did he heal the? There we go. How did he heal the blind man? Anybody want to? Any of you guys know? How did he heal the blind man? All right. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of gross. He kind of spit. He kind of spit in the in the dirt clay actually, and they took that and he rubbed that on the blind man's eyes. Remember what happened then? What he told him to do next? Aiden. He told him to go to a pool, a specific pool, and to wash it off. And when he did that, what happened? Yeah, well, this is interesting because scholars always argued that couldn't have happened. They used it to deny that miracle of Jesus, saying, well, we know that that pool never existed in Israel, in Jerusalem. Never, never existed. Well, it happened to be the case until 2005 when they found the pool. It was a real pool. It happened to be a place where the Jews congregated. It was a fairly popular pool, the Pool of Siloam. So once again, we have scholars denying something about the Bible. It's not true. It's not accurate. There was no pool. It never existed. Oh, until we discovered that it existed. And we find this over and over and over again. There are over 40 different kings listed in the Old Testament that scholars have said never existed until we discovered archaeologically that they did exist. And so, you know, you would think, when you continue to claim something is wrong, and you constantly get proved that you're wrong, and you get beat, they'd finally give up, right? you finally realize, well, this is a losing game. But it doesn't work that way. The world's bent on trying to prove the Bible's wrong, and so they'll say that it's got all these contradictions, or these errors, or these myths, or it's not historically accurate, biblically. And yet, when you look at any single collection of writings in history, whether it's Egyptian texts or others, the Bible alone consistently stands out as being historically accurate. Over and over and over again, the contents of it are proven historically. I'm going to give you one last one here. It's probably one of my favorites. Um, in fact, I've got some resources here that um, I'm going to mention here in a little bit. What's the Exodus? Anybody remember what the Exodus is in the scriptures? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, scholars for years have claimed, they still do today, claim that never happened. They claim Israel was never taken to Egypt. They were never enslaved in Egypt. That they never escaped from Egypt. That they never conquered Canaan. And we've studied that recently, didn't we? We went through the book of of um, Joshua, which is all about leaving Israel, wandering in the wilderness, going off and conquering Canaan. And so what I shared with you folks, historically never happened, according to scholars. Okay? To this day, they argue that absolutely never, ever happened. But the Bible describes it fairly clearly. What's unique about this particular example here is it's not that there's no evidence for the Exodus, it's that they deliberately ignore the evidence. They see the same stuff, but they ignore it. Um, I mentioned some resources here. There's a, great, there's a great movie that came out a couple years ago called Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. Okay? There's a, it's a two-hour movie. This happens to be a book that coincides with, with the movie. 
Okay? What's absolutely fascinating about this is this was done by a guy who researched the Exodus for over 12 years. He literally started with, did it ever happen? And so he went to the biblical text and he said, well, this is what it says. And then he went and he started researching to find evidence for that. And he was coming across all this evidence that had happened. And then he would go and he would talk to Egyptian scholars and Hebrew scholars and Israel scholars. And they would say, no, 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 it didn't happen. And when he'd ask, he'd show them the evidence. He's like, no, look right here. It shows that Israel was there. We, we found the cities where Israel lived and was enslaved. And they would say, oh, no, 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 it can't be because it's the wrong time period. And that's the argument they kept getting back was, it doesn't fit our timetable. It doesn't fit our timetable. And what's fascinating about this is that the details of the biblical text are seen in archaeology in ways that, that don't even match some, some things today that we believe historically. Meaning, you know, we have evidence of World War I and World War II. There is more evidence for the Exodus than a lot of the things we believe historically that are more close to us in the last 50, 60, 100 years. And yet, these scholars ignore it because they absolutely don't want to see that it's true. One of my favorite stories from that is that they've actually discovered the city that Joseph and his brothers lived in. Remember, Joseph was the reason Israel survived the famine. And what's interesting about this is in that city they've discovered a statue of a man that looks like a Hebrew that is wearing a multicolored coat and they still say, no, it couldn't be Joseph. In that city, there are 12 temples. One for each brother. There's only one where they didn't find a body. The one that's dedicated to Joseph. You know what the biblical text says? Because Joseph's body was taken back home. The brothers were left behind. And yet they go, no, 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 that can't be Joseph. Really, all the details are there. But, but it can't be him. It doesn't fit. And so one of the great things about this, um, about the movie, is he takes all that stuff and he does all these graphics and puts it on there and he shows how it fits the biblical record, but most of the scholars in Egypt and in Israel go, yeah, but it's just the wrong time period. It doesn't fit. So it can't be true. And they ignore the evidence instead of going, oh, our timetable's wrong. So... Great resource if you're interested. I've, I, I, I was fascinated. I, like I said, the, I love the video itself. is about two hours long. But then what he did was he put together a book that describes all the stuff around that that you don't see in the... I, I loved it. I, I really enjoy stuff like this because it just bolsters your faith. So the Bible is accurate historically as well. And it's because it was extremely important to the New Testament and the Old Testament writers. Remember when Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. He talks about the research that he did because he wanted to present an accurate account of Christ. And so the Bible is a history book too, folks. It's not just spiritual. And what's amazing amazing about that is we can validate it. We can go to these Old Testament stories, we can go to the New Testament events, and we can validate it by looking at history, looking at archaeology. We can see that they're true validate all of it. A couple other books that I'll mention here. Um, I think I got a couple of them here. This is a great book on just archaeology and how the Bible lines up with it. Just a great resource to have home. It's one of those things where you might pick it up and just read a section which is one or two pages but it goes through all of these things in the Old and the New Testament that have been shown to be true archaeologically. It's just called Evidence for the Bible. Now what's interesting about this is they make a statement in here when it gets to the section on the Exodus that there's no, ex- no evidence for the Exodus yet. So even excellent resources like this are still saying, well, we really haven't found stuff. Now they believe in the Exodus. They're not saying that. They're just saying, we haven't found the archaeology yet. They need to actually look at this. Okay? So even within Christian circles, sometimes you find folks that listen to the wrong scholars. Okay? But still, excellent, excellent resource. Again, just good one page, two pages at a time kind of a stuff. Just absolutely fascinating stuff that will indicate that the Bible itself is true historically. 
Um, I've also got in my notes here a link to um, Answers in Genesis website where there's a great article. It's, if you put it off, it'd probably be 10 pages long on all this support, archaeological support for the historicity of the Bible. It's a historical book and it's accurate. So we can trust it. Let's move on to the third thing, the third reason that we can trust the accuracy of the Bible. The Bible is actually accurate scientifically as well. Okay, so we have fulfilled prophecy. We have that it's accurate historically. The Bible is also accurate scientifically. Now, you might have heard this, that people will claim that the Bible is not a scientific textbook, and that is true. The authors did not write it to be a scientific textbook, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have science in it. The Bible actually makes all kinds of scientific arguments. Somebody help me out. What is astronomy? Eddie? Yeah, astronomy. It's basically the study of space. Okay? And so things like stars, suns, moons, planets, all that kind of stuff. Um, the Bible makes all kinds of claims about astronomy. And they're all true. The Bible says that the stars are innumerable. You can't count them. We still, to this day, that number keeps changing, doesn't it? It says that stars differ in glory, which means there's different kind of stars. We have all kinds of different stars, folks. We have red dwarfs and brown dwarfs. All kinds of different stars we find now. Um, Jeremiah describes that the stars actually follow a pattern. And we know that to be true now. In fact, we tell time and seasons and all that by the stars. There are certain patterns. How do we predict things like, how many of you guys have watched the meteor showers occasionally? Have any of you guys ever gone out to see the meteors? Well, we know when they're coming. Why? Because everything follows a pattern in space. And so the Bible describes that. Isaiah actually described that the earth was round and not flat. I love the fact that today there are still some folks that are flat earth people. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, some of them are professing Christians. I don't, I don't get that, but the earth is round, not flat. Isaiah did that at a time where even then astronomers weren't quite sure. Um, Job actually talked about the earth hanging on nothing, and this was at a time when they believed the earth was supported by pillars. But yet Job... Claim, no, the earth hangs on nothing. It's out in space. There's all kinds of things that the Bible also talks about when it comes to um, describing the young earth, and there's some evidence of that as well. But the Bible makes a number of statements regarding astronomy that have all been, at this point, proven to be true. You know, it's interesting. One of the most recent ones I, I learned about was... Um, when you think about the, the earth being described at one point in Genesis as having, a, having water out in space, and that was always something that um, scientists argued about. Until now, just fairly recently, they've found, a, I don't know how to describe it, massive, massive amounts of water in space. So just five, six years ago, they argued, oh, that you know, wasn't true. But now they don't know how to describe the fact that they've been able to find massive amounts of water out in space. What's anthropology? Anybody know what that word is? That's another big one. Anthropology. Dustin's going to give everybody, anybody five bucks that they can define that. You have to be under the age of 12, though. Chloe. <laughs> Chloe. Um, anthropology is the study of man. The Bible also makes all kinds of statements regarding man that have all been found to be true. Probably one of the most remarkable ones um, what happened at the Tower of Babel? Anybody remember? Come on, you guys got to know the Tower of Babel is another story that wasn't true, right? That's when they built a tower. And what did God do with that, with, uh, with the people on the earth after they built this tower? Yeah. Yeah, he, he not only confused their language, but he did something else. He dispersed them, yeah. Sent them out. Because prior to that, the Bible says that after the flood, they all came together, they stayed together, they got a little arrogant and proud, they didn't learn the lesson from the flood, basically, and so then they began to build, a, build something to the heavens, they wanted to be like God, and so God basically confused their languages and forced them then to spread out. Just two years ago, MIT, which is a very prestigious technical college, all of your brainy, geeky computer guys go there. <laughs> um, 
discovered that as they looked at every known language in the world, they discovered that there was a universal underlying grammar, which means that all the languages of the earth at some point had the same ancestor. The Bible says it's Babel. These computer geeky guys now have said, yeah, that's kind of true, but it wasn't Babel. Some other explanation, but there's an underlying grammar that links all languages. They all came from the same basic source at one point. Something else that's interesting is that when you think about literary things like stories and legends, remember I mentioned that almost every people group on the planet, culture, has a flood story. Do you know that most of them also have a Tower of Babel story? How does that happen? Unless at some point it happened and as those people left and went their own way, they remembered that story and passed that story on from generation to generation. That tells us something too. So there's what I call literary evidence that supports the Bible as well. I'll give you one last one here. There's a great uh, resource. When you look at, I've got two books here. One's called The Secrets of Ancient Man. The other one here is called The Genius of Ancient Man. What's really neat about these two books is it sort of puts into perspective, when you look at mankind all over the world, there's a lot of things that they do the same all over the world, which makes you think they probably learned it from somewhere at some point. Basically, what probably happened is at the Tower of Babel, as they were dispersed, they took many of those things with them, education and knowledge, and they took those to wherever they went. And so one of the things that's really interesting is they show maps and diagrams of this in the book. Is that all over the world you find things like pyramids. It isn't just Egypt. You find pyramids on almost every single continent. They're not always real big, but nonetheless, pyramids. They have things called ziggurats, which are very similar. They have obelisks. You know the Washington Monument is an obelisk. They find those on every continent in the world made by ancient man. How many of you guys have been to the, what they call the earthenworks in Newark, Ohio? The mounds made by Indians. They find those all over the world. What about Stonehenge? you remember what Stonehenge is? Remember that? Yeah. They call, them, they call them hinges. They find those all over the world. Every continent. So what does this prove? If you had everybody in one place at one time, and God took and dispersed you, what are you going to take with you? your culture, your understanding. You're going to take your sciences, your history, and other things with you wherever you go. Now, the longer you're apart, what happens to a lot of that? It changes a little bit. It gets distorted a little bit. But nonetheless, when you look at that, you can see that. And so what you basically find is that the Bible describes our history and the nature of mankind very accurately and tells us where we came from, how we got to where we're at, so, basically, you have the Bible talking about anthropology. Other things, and we won't go into this, but it describes our will, our emotions, how we behave, why we behave. Do you ever wonder, when you look in the scriptures, it describes why we behave, why we behave. It tells us how we behave sometimes. It tells us what to expect. And it does it accurately. Geology is another area. Um, Ecclesiastes described the cycle of water, what happens with water. Describes sea currents and psalms. Describes the fountains of the deep. You know, it's interesting because scientists now have finally, finally begun to recognize the fact that there's more water under the earth than there is on, in many respects. The Bible describes that. So, the Bible talks about all kinds of things. Anthropology, geology, things like that. And it describes them all accurately. Let's look at the very last one. And this is, we're just going to barely touch on this. Because we mentioned it last week. The last thing that I believe indicates why we can trust the Bible in terms of its accuracy is the internal consistency. Remember we talked about this last week briefly? There are 66 different books written by over 40 different authors, written over a span of 1,500 to 2,000 years. It was written by shepherds and kings and scholars and fishermen, priests, prophets, and even a doctor. All different kinds of people with all different kinds of educations, living on three different continents, speaking three different languages. But yet, what they wrote is consistent from the first book, Genesis, to the last book, Revelation. It's consistent. 
You cannot get five people on a street corner witnessing an accident to tell you the story accurately half the time. So investigators have to interview and then re-interview and they don't want to interview them together because they want to get them separate and they begin to try to put the pieces together and come up with something and they throw out certain pieces of information that people say and they accept others. Why is that? We are inherently inconsistent with what we see and what we do and yet we have this collection of 66 writings that make up our Bible that is extremely consistent internally. That alone ought to tell us we can trust it. So what do we basically have? We've got these four different areas that indicate that what we have, we can trust because it's accurate. And so we can trust what's written here because the things that it says and the things that it does are verifiable. We can see it. We know that it's true. So when people think we're silly for believing the myths in the Bible, are we really all that silly? No, not silly. We happen to see the truth. And we're not doing it blindly. Notice that my message today wasn't just one sentence. Oh, you can trust it by faith. Yeah, there's an element of faith, right? But all the things that I've laid out for us are concrete, reasonable things that even the unsaved world should be able to do. But they don't. So let's look at one last thing here. How, do, how would you respond? How would you deal with some of this based on some of the things that, that we've done here? I've given you some examples. Again, if you look in your uh, notebook there. Now remember, the goal is not to argue. The goal is not to prove anything. It's not to convince anyone. It's to be able to say reasonably why we believe the Bible is trustworthy. That's all. That's all God calls us to do. doesn't call us to beat people up. You know, He basically says, defend Defend what you believe. So, one of the questions I put down there is if somebody says to you, how do you know the Bible is true? There's any number of ways that you could answer this. Okay, I've given you an example there of maybe something that you might say. You might start with something like this. Well, prophecies. And you can say something like, well, you know, there's 2,500 prophecies made in the Old and New Testament. And you know what's interesting about that is 80% of those have come true so far. And so I think one of the reasons I can trust the Bible is because it predicts these things, and then they come true, and they come true with incredible accuracy, just like it says. You might mention something like the prophecies regarding Jesus. That's a good one because it gets right at the heart of the gospel. So you might say something like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born, it prophesied that he would be born in in Bethlehem. It predicted, predicted his escape from going to Egypt, and that's what he did. He went to Egypt and had to escape from Egypt, or escape to Egypt. It mentions that he'd be born to a virgin. We know that's the case. It prophesied his crucifixion, and it came true. It prophesied his resurrection, and it came true. And so you can use those as examples to say, well, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is true is because of the prophecies. You might start with that because that's remarkable. You know, that's unique. There's no other book that does that. You might then go on and say something like, I also believe it because historically the Bible's true. You know, we can go and we can look at um, archaeology and see that all these things that the Bible said about history are true. And you can give some of the examples and things that we talked about today. And so what you've basically done is you said, the reason I believe the Bible is true is because it's reasonable to think it's true. Not, well, I just believe it. It's God's word. I was raised that way. You can say, no, I believe it because it's a good history book. And if I can trust the history, shouldn't I trust the spiritual stuff? And it's got these prophecies that are made. And if I can see those come true, then wouldn't you believe it? So it's a great argument to use, not so much, again, to convince them of anything or beat them up or prove that you're right, as much, it is, as, much as it is to say, i got some pretty good reason to believe the Bible's trustworthy. And I'm being reasonable about it. I can show you the history. What about if they say the Bible is just a bunch of myths or stories? I, you know, this one I love because you don't necessarily have to give them a ton of examples, but you might say something like, well, yeah, it's filled with stories, but how do you know that they aren't true? You know? And then you might ask them, well, what's one of the stories or the myths that you think is not true in the Bible? And then maybe you can turn to that. Maybe, you can, maybe they'll let you open the Bible in front of them and say, well, let's, let's talk about Jonah and the fish. Maybe that's one they bring up. And you can say, well, you know what? Um, I was at the museum, or I was at the, you know, the um, place down in, uh, in uh, the beach, and I went to, to you know, see all the fish, and there was this giant 
jaw from a shark. And I can stand in it. Yeah, fish can swallow a man. Now, does it get you to the point where you can say he survived? Maybe not, but at least allows you to open up and talk to them about the Bible, right? Reasonably. Instead of just simply saying, oh, you're nuts. I just trust it because it's the Bible. You know, that is good enough. You know, God says to trust it. But sometimes the world doesn't like that. And so we can use examples like this. Well, tell me some of the stories, some of the things you think are really nuts. You know? Now, you have to be prepared to be able to give answers to some of those things, which might mean you have to read, or you, like I said, that's where sources like this come in really handy, because these things will give you some great arguments to use. Okay? Um, another one here I happen to have, I love this one, talks all about the Tower of Babel. Um, just some neat, neat stuff to give you the information you may or may not need. One last one, I don't know if this is in your book or not. Um, Science disproves the Bible. You hear that a lot now. Science has disproved the Bible. So you might ask them, well, give me an example. A lot of times, these people haven't read the Bible, they won't be able to give you an example. Which means you then get to take them to an example and share with them some things. But, something like this. Well, science has proven that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. We know evolution is true. You might respond with something like this. Well, science really hasn't proven that the earth is that old. That, that old. In fact, it's called a theory for a reason. Facts don't change, but the theory of evolution is always changing. New ideas, new explanations, new timetables. Evolution is far from scientific fact. You might mention to them that, gee, my daddy, when he was in school, the earth was only one billion years old. And there are only nine planets. None in the rest of the world or in the universe. But gee, that's all changed. Why is it? Because science is always changing. Theories are always changing. So how do we know that what they're saying today is true? So if they're saying the earth is 4.5 billion years old today and the universe is 20 billion years old, how do we know that's true? Because next week it's going to be different. It's going to constantly change. So you're able to say, you know, your statement that science has disproved the Bible isn't really true because you're dealing with Theories that are always, always changing. And so, is it all that unreasonable that I might trust what's written here when what you're claiming is true is always changing as well? So there's, there's ways to answer these questions. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to leave it there. Um, I don't know if you have other, I don't remember the book if there's other questions in there or not, but um, I would encourage you um, to do some role playing with your parents. Come up with some of your own questions, maybe things that your friends have asked or things that you might think they might ask, and do some role-playing with mom and dad. Kind of talk through it. It's kind of fun to make those arguments, um, see how they hold up. But the one thing we absolutely know for sure is that the Bible is a trustworthy document. It's unique in the way that we got it, the way that it was made and produced by God and preserved by Him, but it's also accurate. And everything that it talks about, historically, about man, about science. Now, does it answer all the questions? No. But the things that it does answer, the things that it does say, have been proven over and over and over again to be accurate, which means it's trustworthy. And it is reasonable and smart to think that it is, regardless of what the world says.